This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Amanda Dahlstrang, a PhD student and job market candidate at the London School of Economics. Today, we are going to talk about her paper, Define Distance, the Provision of Services in the Digital Age. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jordi. So Amanda, this paper studies primary care consultations between patients and general practitioners that take place online or digitally. So your paper studies a very specific potential benefit of digital consultations, which is the ability to match the best doctors with the patients that are most in need. But before we discuss this specific benefit, I was wondering whether you could comment more generally on the trade-offs that are associated with moving consultations from face-to-face to a digital setting. Yes, of course. Though that is not the main point of this paper, uh, I want to make that clear. It's not to compare digital to physical. I can surely comment a bit on that. So in the past few years, starting actually way before the pandemic, a few years before the pandemic, a lot of services have started to move online, and that includes digital healthcare. Primary care is what I'm focusing on, and that often involves a first consultation where you discuss your problems with the general practitioner or primary care provider. And this is sometimes followed by a physical examination or some testing, which cannot be done online. So of course, in the cases where the examination needs to be done physically, uh, digital care will not work. Uh, However, in a large proportion of cases that come to primary care in general, most of these can be handled online and of course, otherwise be referred to physical. And other parts of healthcare, uh, such as specialist care, can sometimes be handled online when uh, it's about a revisit to talk about how medication work, for instance, while other types of specialist care, for instance, when you have to measure some uh, blood pressure or or perform an invasive treatment can obviously not be handled online. So there are some parts of healthcare that can be handled online and others that can't. So in the UK, during the pandemic, many appointments moved online and now the health secretary has been trying to put pressure on GPs to increase the availability of face-to-face appointments. What I read from here is that GPs prefer to work from home, but this implies that many patients do not get to see the GP either because they prefer face-to-face or maybe they are not digitally fluent. And the health secretary anyway claims that this has increased the pressure that is put on the emergency department because some of these patients end up going to the emergency department as a result of not having you know, consulted with a primary care doctor. I think that a, a, an important feature that seems like necessary for digital consultations to work and that is present in your setting is that they are a complement rather than a substitute uh, for face-to-face consultations. Absolutely, you're completely right. So I'm not at all dealing with a pandemic setting where the there is, for instance, in a in a country, a lockdown, and you can't even visit the physical care. I'm dealing with a pre-pandemic setting, which is more, hopefully, more similar to the status quo after the pandemic as well, where digital care is a complement and the patient is completely free to choose between digital and and physical care. So we have talked generally about digital versus face-to-face. Can you describe now the specific benefit associated with digital care that is the focus of your paper? 
I found it very interesting because it is it was not a benefit that I will have independently figured out by myself. But once you mention it, of course, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sure. So when a person uh, needs to visit primary care, what has been the case before digital is that this person needs to go to a primary care provider near them. Just as an example, in Sweden, over 90% of patients have their physical primary care center within 10 minutes from home. So their distance, the geographical location and distance is an important factor determining which patient meets which provider. But when we move digital, essentially we are expanding the options of the different providers that any given patient can meet. And in my case, the options are flexible across the country. So we are removing this distance constraint and any patient in the country is able to meet any doctor in the country. And as economists, going back to division of labor and specialization, back to the founder, Adam Smith, we would naturally think that this increased flexibility means that we can take advantage of physicians' specific skills and specializations and match doctors and patients better. In some sense, there is already a match taking place in the physical world. And one claim in your paper is that this match is actually of a negative sort. That is, we could improve upon, say, completely random allocation of doctors to patients. But even random allocation is an improvement over the current system. Could you describe why that is the case? Yes. Uh, so in many countries, we have healthcare and health outcome inequality across the income distribution. So this is documented by many papers, including papers studying Sweden in particular, such as Chen, Person and Polyakova published this year. So this has many causes, but one of them seems to be unequal access to quality healthcare. And I show some descriptive uh, statistics showing that patients in areas with lower income have worse uh, quality uh, physical primary care in their area. And this is particularly problematic given that it is often the lower income and lower socioeconomic status patients who have the highest health care needs because they have more diseases because of other factors. Another important feature of your setting is that this being Sweden, there is a universal healthcare, which implies that there is like a common pool of doctors and patients throughout the country rather than it being very fragmented, right? Like if we thought that the patients have health insurance and there is a very large number of insurers, then these benefits of maths that you will be exploiting wouldn't be as easily obtainable. So that's that's an interesting point. So yes, part of why I have such a wide variety of patients and doctors who can match with each other is because it is the universal health insurance that reimburses this company providing these digital video consultations. However, primary care in general in Sweden is devolved to 21 or 20 regions. And so primary care data in general is, is not merged and there are inequalities in, in different services across the regions when it's not digital. So given the, this fact that it is a private company that bills the universal health insurance across the country, despite the fact that normally primary care is provided by regions, 
is suggestive that this could happen in other countries as well, which it has when, when the same provider has entered many other European markets. We have discussed a little bit like how primary care is delivered uh, in a physical uh, setting. And I guess that most listeners will be familiar with this from their own experience. But could you describe a bit more how these digital consultations take place in your setting? How do patients join? How do doctors join? Uh, and so on. Yeah. So both patients and doctors freely sort into working with a service or, or using the service. And on the patient side, patients access the service via an app on their smartphone or iPad or similar. And they identify themselves via bank ID, which is a nationally available identification system system that is used for all governmental services and many private services. So the coverage of this is extremely wide. And patients, when they need care, they access the app and a vast majority of patients choose the first available appointment. That is the most common track into the service. And within this track, doctors and patients are randomly assigned conditional on time. So in all my analysis, I have a time shift, three hour time shift by the exact calendar date fixed effect to only compare doctors and patients who work and join the service at the same time period. The doctors on their side, they choose to work for the service their pay structure is completely fixed hourly rate. There are no bonus payments or fee for service for the doctors. And they schedule themselves into these shifts. Almost all doctors work part time. So they also work for some physical uh, providers, such as a hospital or a clinic. And then they uh, work through the roster of patients that are randomly allocated through to them. So the random allocation uh, is a result of a, a double queuing system. That is, if, the, if there are no patients in the queue, then whenever a patient arrives, the patient is matched with the first doctor in the queue. And vice versa, if uh, there are no doctors in the queue, then the patients form a queue and then the next available doctor will meet. That is, you know, like a, a very standard empirical strategy, really, that yeah. conditional on time creates this uh, random allocation in the match. Exactly. So there are some, some differences to exactly what you described, which is that during my sample period, uh, they during to, towards the end of the sample period, the company introduced a slightly higher weight on child, small child patients under the age of four, I think, to doctor who have a more pediatric background. Therefore, I exclude all these doctors and these young children. However, later on, after my sample period in data that I do not include yet, but uh, that I might analyze later, and they uh, have introduced more matching. So this shows that it's possible to do algorithmic matching but they didn't do it in the beginning, which allows for this causal identification. So your sample is essentially a sample of consultations. Could you describe the basic features of this analysis sample before you split it into subsamples and so on? And also what a good outcome of a consultation is? 
That is, how can we say that this consultation was successful? Great, yeah. The data set consists of all uh, the consultations between 20, in the middle of 2016, when the service started, to the end of 2018, when the sample period ends. So all digital care consultations. Uh, but I do some sample restriction. As I mentioned, I remove some young children and pediatricians and their patients, which means in the end, I do some more sample restrictions, which you can find in the paper. And in the end, I end up with 200,000 patients. And I only use the first consultation of these patients, which means I have around 200,000 consultations and patients. And uh, the reason I only use the first one is to limit any endogeneity in the second visit, who selects into the second visit, etc. And moreover, most patients have only one visit during this period. The mean is one and a half visits. So that's uh, one of the samples. And I match this on the individual level with all the universe of their uh, the, these patients, hospital specialists, acute visits from the universal health insurance in the whole country in some years before digital care from 2013 to the end of 2018. And moreover, I match it with some data sets on socioeconomic and demographic data from Statistics Sweden on the individual level. And I also match it with the universe of primary care consultations in one region, Scania, Skåne, in the south of Sweden, which consists of 1.6 million units or um, individuals, actually, patients. And what is a good outcome of a consultation? So a good outcome, this is really interesting because as usual in, in healthcare, people study utilization and spending because it is quite difficult to uh, find a good left-hand side variable uh, because the outcomes are often delayed and they are quite rare. And sometimes it's hard to attribute the outcome to the specific provider or doctor. So the ideal outcome would be something that is clearly objectively positive or negative, uh, such as mortality, which is clearly negative. However, in a um, primary care setting, mortality is very rare, luckily, uh, of course, uh, because the conditions that people seek for are often not as serious to lead to short-term mortality. But an, an outcome that is a good proxy for something as serious as mortality is avoidable hospitalizations. So this is not all hospitalizations, which I could have used because they are not as objectively positive or negative. But avoidable hospitalizations is a measure that is developed in the medical literature to measure a hospitalization which could have been avoided by timely and adequate primary care. I think it was first used by Billings in 1993. And it has since been developed to include a certain number of uh, diagnosis codes that you shouldn't ha have to have been hospitalized with had you had enough primary care at the right time uh, before. So an example of this could be a urinary tract infection that could be treated with antibiotics early on, but has not been. And therefore, it has developed to something more serious involving the kidneys. 
Or another example could be a lower respiratory infection that develops into pneumonia or something chronic such as asthma or diabetes that is not properly managed and leads to hospitalization. So this is one outcome. But what I want to focus on is that doctors can have different skills. Often in the literature, uh, also in the teacher value-added literature, it's often one kind of vertical ability measure of each agent. But here I wanted to focus on, on more of a horizontal dimension of different skills. And I also measure, for instance, compliance to medical guidelines with counter-guideline antibiotics prescriptions. So this measures a different dimension of a doctor skill that they are able to resist patient desire to have antibiotics and weigh correctly the patient's benefit, which sometimes is zero from antibiotics if they have a virus, against the externality, the negative social effect of prescribing too much antibiotics, which renders antibiotics useless for everyone. So just to summarize what you said, two dependent variables. Number one, avoidable hospitalizations which uh, takes value one if the patient ended up in the hospital having some type of a condition that shouldn't have uh, led the uh, patient ending up in the hospital. And number two, counter guideline prescriptions, which means prescribing antibiotics for things that don't need it. These are the two main uh, outcome variables in the paper. I also add a third outcome variable. Uh, which is whether the patient contacts physical primary care in the week following the visit. This is a lower stakes outcome. It's not as clearly negative. But if we notice that for a certain doctor, very many patients end up going to physical primary care compared to for other doctors, then maybe it's a sign that this uh, doctor has not satisfied their needs in, in digital care. So this is more about communication and making the patient understand the treatment plan. So the objective of the paper, if I understood it well, is to show that if we can identify the doctors that are better along these three dimensions and then match them to specific patients, then we can obtain better outcomes uh, for these patients while avoiding them for other patients who do not necessarily benefit so much from these specific skills that these doctors have. Can you tell us what is the empirical strategy that you use to uh, attain this, this objective in the, in the paper? Yes, absolutely. I'll try to summarize it. So first, the identifying assumption is based on this conditional random assignment between patients and doctors. And this will allow me to do two things. First, in a holdout sample, it will allow me to estimate with an empirical base estimator shrunk random effect the skill of the doctor in these different outcomes. And then also in another holdout sample, the sample of primary care consultations before digital care, I estimate patient risk. Taking these two estimate of patients and doctor characteristic together and using the main sample, which is separate from those two earlier samples I mentioned, I then estimate the match effects. So the causal treatment effects from matching a patient who is more risky in one measure with a doctor who is higher skilled in that measure. So I could have stopped there and just said that uh, doctors have complementarities with patient types. 
And for instance, in the case of avoidable hospitalizations, a doctor who is identified as a top 10% in preventing avoidable hospitalizations can prevent 90% of the patients, the risky patients, uh, three months after avoidable hospitalizations. However, um, this would not have been as policy relevant as to include also the, the other step that I do with the counterfactual allocations. Just because of the externalities, what you mentioned earlier, that we need to remove a doctor from another patient when we allocate them to the risky patient. And we want to take into account any negative, however small, effects on that patient that we move them from. So how to do that then? Well, then I adopt a framework by Graham, Imbens, and Ritter, and I estimate the average reallocation effects using that average match function that I discussed earlier. And I reallocate the patients and doctors in a sort of positive assortative way on skills and need. And then I measure the aggregate effects on all the outcomes. So first on the outcome that I sought to uh, improve, such as avoidable hospitalizations, and then also on the other outcomes so that I see that the aggregate effects on the other outcomes also do not suffer from reducing avoidable hospitalizations. But the first time that I, I looked at this paper, and given that you had like this uh, fancy framework by these like reputable econometricians, I thought this is going to be very hard to understand. But then I, I thought, wait a second, this is at least initially, conceptually, much simpler than it appears. And I thought about the following exercise. So imagine that you have two types of patients, blue and red, and two types of doctors, blue and red, and the setting of random assignment. Now, I run a regression of some outcome on a blue dummy for the patient, a blue dummy for the doctor, and interaction. And imagine that I find that the interaction is positive, which means that matching blue patients with blue doctors leads to higher productivity. I could take the estimates from this regression and do a counterfactual. I could call it a counterfactual, but in fact, this is just a fancy name for the prediction of what the productivity will have been if I match all blue patients with blue doctors and all red patients with red doctors. This is essentially what you're doing with a few caveats. The first one is that you don't know who are the blue doctors, and therefore you need a sample in order to estimate the type of the doctor. The second is that you also don't know the color of the patients, so you need a sample to see who the patients are. If you had observable characteristics, then you wouldn't need to do like this complicated exercise. The issue is that the characteristic that you're trying to isolate is one that is unobservable. And as a result of this, you need to do several steps for the exercise. Yeah, so this is a great summary. And I want to add another caveat. So you said that what I would do in the counterfactual is just allocate all blue patients to blue doctors, for instance. So I do take into account the exact constraints in the setting in the sense that I do not increase the work hours of the doctors that are estimated as high skilled in some dimension. So the constraint is that the distribution of of consultations and doctor skill is exactly the same as in the real world setting. So that's the caveat I wanted to add to your description. 
if in my world we had like 50% of patients being blue yeah, and 50% yeah, of doctors being yeah, blue. Yeah, but we don't maybe in the real world. But it's true. It It is quite simple, which is really nice. It's conceptually straightforward, the whole framework. I really like it, therefore. Uh, and it, it is possible to explain to, to someone who, who doesn't know econometrics. So one thing that I noticed in, in the paper is that you have 200,000 observations in a big sample and average avoidable hospitalizations is uh, 0.2% because these are like uh, obviously rare events, not as rare as mortality, but still very rare. Now, if you multiply these two numbers, that comes to 400 avoidable hospitalizations. So I was wondering how powerful from a statistical standpoint your regressions are because you have 150 doctors. This essentially implies that there is... 2.5 hospitalizations per doctor on average. In fact, it is possible that some doctors in your sample don't have a single avoidable hospitalization. So there is a little bit of a, an issue there that, you know, the, the fixed effects, you call them, I mean, you do random effects, but the easiest way to think about this is the fixed effects for the doctors are not going to be very precisely estimated. Uh, so great point. So this is how I, I decide uh, to the size of the holdout sample essentially where I estimate these uh, effects for the doctors. I want to ensure uh, a kind of common support for the doctors so that they have seen risky patients. And over 95% of the doctors have seen a very risky patient and even had an avoidable hospitalization of their patient in this holdout sample. And this, uh, using both this fact and the fact that I can add many patient controls create quite good, a decent power. And most of these uh, effects are, are uh, quite precise. The other question that I had was in terms of identifying the patient type. This is, again, something that you estimate. But you, you are saying that the characteristic of the random assignment of uh, patients to doctors is a big, important uh, component of being able to estimate the doctor effects precisely. But then the patient types, you are not estimating them from this sample, the one that uses the random allocation, but instead from an earlier sample in which patients may have had avoidable hospitalizations, not because they are of an intrinsic bad type, but instead because they happen to live in areas with terrible doctors. So there is a little bit um, of, a, of a mismatch there between the way that you estimate both types of effects. Yeah, this is a great point. But I consider this an important feature, actually, of the patient characteristics, because I want to take into account the current system's inequality. So we know that low-income patients and low-education patients have many more avoidable hospitalizations. And it is still unclear exactly what proportion of, of, uh, of this is explained by lifestyle, uh, genetics, or their local area healthcare or other factors. So I want to take an overall view, and, and we know that these patients have more avoidable hospitalizations. So I include the fact that in the world today, there may be lower, uh, worse healthcare for them. So that's actually something that I think is a good thing that that's included in the patient risk. Let me see whether I understood it. Your claim is that because you are trying to achieve prediction rather than causality, it's fine. It may be that it's not something intrinsic to these patients, 
but correlated yeah. with these patients, this is still okay for you. Yeah. So for the patient types, I'm trying to achieve prediction. And then for the match later, I try to achieve causality. Okay. So what are the baseline uh, results that you find doing this exercise? Yeah. So the first uh, result is that if we reallocate patients and doctors to have the higher skilled doctors in terms of avoidable hospitalizations meet the riskier patients in terms of avoidable hospitalizations, on aggregate, we can reduce avoidable hospitalizations by 20%. And this precise reallocation does not make the other outcomes, the counter guideline prescriptions and the um, uh, additional visits in physical primary care any worse. So this 20% reduction in avoidable hospitalizations has come from reallocating only 2% of patients because like in many other healthcare outcomes, it's a small fraction of patients that are very risky and drive a lot of the costs. And the risks of avoidable hospitalizations are, are several. It's, it's both the health risk for the patient of having their condition being worsened to this point, plus the health risk of the patient of a hospital stay with potentially invasive treatments and side effects. So uh, other literature has estimated a, a large mortality effect of these avoidable hospitalizations. Second, they are very costly and reducing them by 20%, if it's possible to generalize, we could save 2% of the total healthcare costs in the country. So that is a main result. And then I go into several drivers of these results in terms of how the doctor works and how the skill is distributed. So just focusing on this uh, thing here, one way, I mean, the way that you focus on in the paper in terms of avoiding these uh, hospitalizations is in terms of using the information about the patient, which is the propensity score that this person will suffer an avoidable hospitalization and match those patients with specific doctors that you have identified. So the algorithm will do that. But of course, once you have that information about the propensity score of the patient, I guess that another possibility could be to have a flag that pops up in the computer of any doctor. And that, I'm not saying that your system has many drawbacks, but if you have any drawbacks, maybe we can discuss later. That would be an alternative way that uh, perhaps would be considered as fairer if you want, because we're not taking the doctor away from anybody. Even if it is, there are no externalities, you know, it, it could be still perceived as, as, as less fair. That would be an alternative in some sense. I want to say two, two things on this. First, the information that I use to predict patient risk is already available to the doctor. So in almost all cases, doctors can slightly before the meeting and during the meeting access the patient's medical records where this information is listed. Although, of course, not collapsed and weighted in exact, exactly the format that I do in the propensity score, but they do see the previous diagnosis. They do see the previous hospitalizations and the demographic variables that I use. So in, in that sense, my prediction is fair and the doctor already has the information. And it seems that the doctors who are highly skilled on this are very able to zone in on this information and do the right thing for these patients. However, another point is 
that when we kind of flag the patients, if we want to use the information to make medical decisions for the patients, we might run into something which is discussed by experimental psychologists and also by some economists such as Kleinberg, Melinatan and co-authors. Uh, which is that people are algorithm averse. They do not want important decisions being made for them by algorithms. And if we make the triage decision based off the information through an algorithm, then in the end, this may mean that patients trusted less. So what I am suggesting is to use the data and algorithms in a different way before the medical decision is made in terms of matching patients to doctors. And then it's completely the doctor that makes the medical decision. So potentially this could be less subject to algorithm aversion. So one of the most interesting things of the paper, and you have just referred to this earlier, is that there is no positive correlation between being a good doctor in one dimension and being a good doctor in a different dimension. In fact, there is maybe even like a negative correlation. And I was wondering whether this negative correlation isn't in some sense uh, mechanical, given the outcome variables that you have uh, for the following reason. When you gave earlier the example of an avoidable hospitalization, You said somebody shows up with a urinary tract infection. If we give antibiotics on time, we can avoid that person ending up in the hospital. Then the other outcome variable was non-prescription guidelines antibiotics. That makes me think that if there is a doctor who, for whatever reason, is very easy on the antibiotics, that doctor will show up as really good on one dimension and really bad on another. And hence the negative correlation that, that you find. It is possible that with other measures of, of a, with other outcome variables, this negative correlation may not be there. Yeah, this is important and a very important point. So in fact, there is no negative correlation between the two measures you mentioned, the counter guideline prescription and avoidable hospitalization. It is a zero correlation. However, between the counter guideline prescription and the physical care visit in the same week, there is a negative correlation. And just as you say, it could absolutely be that some doctors are more intense in their treatment and less likely to follow these guidelines on antibiotics. But in a sense, this is the whole task of a primary care doctor to balance the benefits and costs of treatment in a good way. And I do measure type one versus type two errors in a sense. So for instance, for the doctors who are really skilled at avoidable hospitalization prevention, what I show for them is that they are actually good at targeting exactly the patients that need avoidable hospitalization prevention by uh, triaging them to a higher level of care. They could have done this through triaging everyone to a higher level of care and being really lax with this triaging. But what I show is that they don't. So there are no additional false positives while minimizing the false negatives because they do not send non-risky patients to a higher level of care more often. And as you mentioned on the counter guideline prescription, it is true that some doctors are more lax with not following guidelines. However, the exact example you mentioned in terms of the UTI and avoidable hospitalization is not entirely correct because for a UTI, it is uh, suggested to prescribe antibiotics 
Um, so for because this is important to prevent, for instance, what I mentioned. So you don't need a test to prescribe antibiotics in digital care for a UTI. Uh, so that would not be considered a counter guideline prescription. So yeah, so but but there is in a sense a trade-off, like you said, between the counter guideline prescriptions and the the physical care visits, because some patients may really want to have an antibiotic. And if a doctor is strict on not prescribing when not advised by the medical recommendations, then the patient may visit physical primary care to try to get that same treatment. So yeah, that there, there would be kind of a negative correlation between those skills. And that I do observe in the, in the data. Another interesting finding that you have mentioned that, that I want to emphasize is that there are uh, what you call strong complementarities or match effects that are positive. And this, as you say, means the following. A top 10% doctor on avoidable hospitalizations reduces avoidable hospitalizations by a lot for the top 1% risky patients, but has no effect on other patients. And there is a discussion in the paper about whether this is to be expected or, or surprising. I was thinking that this is perhaps the result uh, of the fact that avoidable hospitalizations are so rare. In practice, the fact that they are rare means that the bottom 99% of patients essentially has zero chance of them. And there, if you have already a zero chance of them, nobody's going to have an effect on you. Imagine a world in which avoidable hospitalizations was not 0.2% of consultations, but instead 99.8% of consultations. Then we would expect that the top doctors have the highest effect on the bottom patients rather than on the top patients. So it's, in some sense, mechanical is not the right word, but it is a direct result of the distribution of the outcome variable, if you want. Two points on this. It is a little bit surprising still, just because I have shown that we are so well able to target. So I have predicted this 1% of risky patients. It might as well have been that the, the rest of patients also had a risk, but I wasn't able to predict it. And, and they do have a small risk, some of them. So what I show with this complementarity is that we can target, we can actually identify the patients and the doctors who have a strong match effect. So that's one point. And the other point is that partly because avoidable hospitalizations is so rare is why I complement also with these other outcomes. And while I don't focus so much on them in the present version of the paper, I do find similar strong complementarities, for instance, in counter guideline prescriptions. And there, the main patient predictor is the, the share of their past prescriptions in the past three years that were antibiotics. And this is, is not uh, very rare. Many people have had uh, antibiotics and many people have, by that measure, a quite high risk to, to be antibiotic users. And still, I find important complementarities between patients who are high users of antibiotics and seeing a doctor who is, is more strict on, on antibiotics. So in terms of how to implement this, you were mentioning that the company is already introducing some type of like algorithm, algorithmic match. So I am familiar with the literature on teamwork in organizations or peer effects in organizations. And there is 
obviously a resemblance here. So these papers, at least if they are any good, they typically have some empirical strategy that exploits exogenous allocation of individuals to teams or to peer groups. And typically, some type of effects are found and the policy prescription that you read in the conclusion is always the same. It will be efficient for the organization to create teams with these characteristics or to match workers with peers of certain characteristics and so on. And the question that comes to my mind always is, why do organizations not do that? And one possibility is, of course, that they have not read the paper. The other possibility is that there are constraints to these very fine matching procedures. Now, I agree with you that these constraints seem to be much smaller in the setting that you are studied uh, relative to other settings. Uh, it is true that provided that the algorithm has the information, you can run it, identify the doctors and patients immediately. But I was thinking about whether there are still a few constraints that you have uh, to take into account here, in addition to the time constraints that you already incorporate. So one of them is the following. So if the differences between doctors are revealing skill, then that's fine. But they could also be revealing willingness to put effort in identifying the condition and avoiding the hospitalization. And that will create a dilemma for doctors because by doing their jobs better, they will increase the chances that they are matching the future with more challenging patients because the algorithm will react automatically in this way. And I'm, I'm thinking if I am in a department and I am given an administrative role, I don't want to do it well. I want to do it as badly as possible, because if I do it well in the future, I will be given more of these type of jobs. So there is a bit of a ratchet effect for doctors uh, from that perspective. And from the side of patients, there is also an issue of the social contract. Like I, I agree with you that the current system in the physical world is creating the wrong type of matching, that is matching the best doctors with the middle-class patients or, or whatever. Random allocation improves on this, but imagine that now the affluent patients that typically don't have avoidable hospitalizations realize that the algorithm is matching them with the doctors that are not going to be that careful in case you know, in the rare case that they actually have a urinary tract infection. That will be a little bit annoying for these patients who are paying the taxes on which the whole system is, uh, is resting. So let me start with the patients. So it's important that in terms of the prediction, I do not use any socioeconomic or socio, any kind of uh, income-based variables. So it is not the case ex ante that I, I try to match the lower income patients with the doctors more skilled in avoidable hospitalizations. If the data would have shown that uh, it was the high income patients who had the higher risk, they would have been matched to them. And on other outcomes, for instance, the counter guideline prescription, there is no clear income gradient in, or health gradient across income in the this outcome. So there, there the optimal matching does not involve matching the more skilled doctors on that dimension to the poorer patients. In terms of that, if you were a high income patient, 
with a, a risk for avoidable hospitalization, you would still be matched with a doctor uh, who had a high skill on this. And we could also extend to many other conditions. And in terms of what you said about taxpayers, the avoidable hospitalizations cost a lot, a lot for the taxpayers, which hopefully would be reduced and the, and the money could be spent towards other things or taxes could be reduced. And in terms of the doctors, exactly, that is a very important question about the dynamic effects for, for doctors. And that is actually something that I plan to study in this coming data set where there is a matching already, although exactly not on exactly these features, what happens to doctors when they are matched to certain patients? This is a super interesting question. But on exactly the, the story that you brought up, I'm not entirely sure that it is a good comparison with uh, you being matched to administrative tasks in your department, which you try to do not so well, because I think that it's not the case that, that the doctor who are really good at detecting and preventing avoidable hospitalizations necessarily think this is a, a terrible task. In fact, within MDs, they do sort into different parts of healthcare. Some uh, doctors uh, who have their MDs sort into becoming acute care doctors who, who deal with emergency patients all the time because they are good at this and they think it's exciting. So it's not necessarily a negative thing. And within general practice. Arguably, people who sort uh, when they have an MD into general practice are people who maybe weigh the nine to five aspect of the work, uh, maybe more possible to combine with family life higher than other doctors. And within that large pool of doctors, there may also be different tastes for different tasks. So it might well be that the doctors within general practice who are good at avoidable hospitalization pre prevention also think that is a quite enjoyable task because they have a big impact. Thank you very much, Amanda, for coming to the program. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and really interesting questions. My guest today has been Amanda Dahlstrand. My name is Jordi Blanesi Vidal and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tang.